0: Does faith make void God's law? That's an important question folks. Because if it's true that we are saved by justification, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, the question inevitably comes up, then what's the point of God's law? What's the point? If we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, what's the point? This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. I want you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter three, and we're going to close out our study of chapter three this morning. The message is entitled "Q and A with the Apostle Paul," verses twenty-seven through thirty-one. I want you to stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Paul asks a series of questions. He begins, "Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works?" No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. One of my favorite episodes from church history took place in the year 1717 when Francis's or Francis um, Louis XIV died. He was the king of France, Louis XIV. And when he died, they laid his body in a golden coffin uh, because he had referred to himself as the Sun King. And his court was really the most magnificent in all of Europe. So to dramatize his greatness, he had given orders that during his funeral... The cathedral would only be dimly lit by a single candle, a special candle that was placed over his coffin. And as thousands waited in hushed silence, uh, the bishop began to speak and then slowly the bishop reached down and snuffed out the candle and he said, only God is great. Well, that is essentially what Paul has been doing. We began to see last time that Paul has turned from the bad news of condemnation and the wrath of God revealed, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, to the good news of salvation, the righteousness of God revealed. Paul is therefore saying, only God is great. Since men themselves are not even good, it stands to reason that God must be great. And His greatness is revealed through His saving righteousness. Paul began that discussion in chapter 3 verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, he began the discussion by insisting that salvation comes only through Christ's death and the corollary truth that salvation is appropriated only to the one who has faith. So Christ's death is not sufficient for all universally because sinners must Appropriate Christ to themselves through faith. He showed how God's saving righteousness can be viewed from three different angles. We saw this last week. First angle was justification, where the believer through faith in Christ is declared righteous. Then he spoke about the concept of redemption that faith that Jesus' blood paid the ransom price to deliver us from sin and Satan and death reveals this concept of redemption that. We are slaves who have been redeemed from our bondage to sin and we've been set at liberty by Christ. So justification and redemption. And then the third angle by which to view God's saving righteousness was propitiation. This is faith that the cross is not only about the love and the grace and the mercy of God, we are grateful for that, but it is also about the justice of God because Christ's sacrificial death satisfied God's wrath. So those three things, justification Redemption and propitiation are the angles through which or around which Paul wants us to understand God's saving righteousness. It all has to do about God's greatness. It is God that declares us righteous through our faith. It is God through Christ that redeems us. It is God in Christ that satisfies the wrath of God because God the Father punished His only begotten Son on the cross. So now, building on that emphasis that faith alone is all that is necessary for the sinner to receive God's great saving righteousness, Paul now returns. To a technique that he had used earlier. He borrows it from the Greek philosophers. If you remember, it's called the diatribe. A diatribe is where Paul raises questions to an imaginary critic. He assumes certain questions are going to be raised, and he has a sort of um, dialogue with this imaginary critic in which he raises the questions as if someone else is asking them, and then he answers the question as if he is the teacher equipped to provide the answer. Earlier, he used the diatribe Related to man's judgment, a series of questions was asked, if all this is true about God's judgment, what if, what if, what if? Now he uses the diatribe related to man's justification. So before it was questions about judgment, now it's questions about justification. If everything you are saying is true, Paul, what about this? What about that? What about this? And so in building the next piece of his argument regarding justification by faith alone, Paul answers questions that he anticipates from those who may challenge him. The challengers could be anybody. They're obviously sinners who have some problem with God and God's way of salvation. Most likely they are self-righteous Jews, at least that's part of the group Paul has in mind, because they are the sort of people that poo-poo the idea of justification by faith alone. They believe that there's something they can do, that there's something good within themselves that they can somehow live up to a right standard and be made right with God. And so Paul answers the questions that they raise and challenging the doctrine of justification. There are three sets of questions and answers found in verses 27 through 31. The first question is in verses 27 and 28, where the question is asked, where is boasting? Then in verses 29 and 30, is God only God of the Jews? And then in verse 31, does faith, faith in Christ alone, make void God's law? So let's look at each of these three questions. This is like a Q&A that Paul is standing before this congregation and fielding questions. And the first question is, where is boasting? Verses 27 and 28, where is boasting? Notice the question at the beginning of verse 27, Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Caucasus is the word for boasting. It refers to self-congratulation. That you could say patting oneself on their back or a sort of act of exaltation. The verb boasting has to do with talking about the greatness of oneself, trying to take credit for salvation. That is the context. The question is being asked, where can the sinner then boast if everything about salvation has to do about God? And boasting, therefore, is the ultimate form of theft because it robs God of his glory. And so Paul moves quickly from that rhetorical question, then what becomes of our boasting to the answer? Verse 27, it is excluded, Paul says. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, Paul says, but by the law of faith. Notice how the first part of Paul's answer is an emphatic negative. He says, it is excluded. What is excluded? Boasting is excluded. He asks the question and then he answers it immediately because he doesn't want any of the listeners to think even for one second that there's any room for boasting. It is, that is boasting, excluded. This statement has the, the stronger force of shutting out once for all because of the eras tense in which it is, it is used. If you think back to the illustration I gave at the beginning, Paul is really playing the part of that bishop who snuffed out the light or the flame of that candle above the king's coffin. Paul is snuffing out the flame of boasting, and he is saying, it is excluded, only God is great. And this, of course, has to be true because Paul has already shown that man is far from great. In fact, Paul said in verse 12, man isn't even good. No, not even one. So if man isn't ever good, then it's impossible for him to be great. And that means that God in his grace, his saving righteousness, is the great one. But Paul doesn't raise this question as if man doesn't have the tendency to boast of his gratefulness. All men at their heart are boasters. The Jews boasted before Jesus, we have Abraham as our father. Paul said in chapter 2 and verse 17 that the self-righteous Jew relied on obedience to the law and boasted in God's name, which was really a a sneaky religious way of boasting in himself. He just used God's name. In chapter 2 and verse 23, Paul said that hypocrites boast in the law and therefore they dishonor the law because they don't obey the law. Later in chapter 4, we're going to see in verse 2 that Paul will say that if Abraham was justified by his works, then he would have something to boast about. But of course, the whole argument there is that Abraham had nothing to boast about because he wasn't justified by his works. He was justified by faith. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the doctrine of God's election, which um, was accomplished in the Trinity, in the covenant of redemption, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election, was so that 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is one reason why we cherish the doctrine of election and predestination. It leaves no room for any Christian to boast. You remember Paul's words in Philippians 3.3, 3, speaking on behalf of true Christians. Paul says, we glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh. Why did he say that? He said that because he had to remind Christians that there's no room for boasting. It is excluded. And then, of course, as we saw last week in verse 23, Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Paul puts the argument together that no human being has any right to boast. It is excluded. Once for all, the argument is shut down. It is out of the question. And although it could be true that Paul might have in his mind, in particular, the self-righteous Jew, the, the answer really applies across the board to any human being. It applies to any false religion or false, or false cult that says you can earn your way to God, that you can be a good person or do certain rituals to get right with God. And while Paul may be borrowing from the Greek philosophers and their use of the technique of the diatribe, Make no mistake about it, he's not adopting their philosophy. You do understand that the Greeks um, also frowned upon boasting, but their reason was different. The Greeks were motivated not to boast because they believed that it wasn't dignified. They believed that it violated dignity. For Paul, says all, For Paul, he says that all boasting is excluded not because it violates man's dignity merely, but because it violates God's glory. It robs God of his greatness and his goodness and his kindness demonstrated in justification by faith alone. Now notice, Paul goes on to explain in the second part of his answer, really what he began, and he raises a couple of shorter rhetorical questions. He goes on to explain by what kind of law By a law of works, Paul asks? No, but by the law of faith. Now, when you read that, don't think only of the Ten Commandments when you read the word law in that question. By what kind of law? Here, law, in the way Paul intends, is to be interpreted as a principle or a method or a rule. And he clarifies this is what he means by asking another question. He says, by a law of works. He's not talking about mosaic law necessarily and in particular Paul is saying that if your law if your principle if your method if your rule of life is that salvation is attained by obeying the law then you would have a reason to boast, and you better work really hard because I just said that there's none good no not one if you're able to perfectly obey God's law if that's the rule the principle that you live by then you have room for boasting. But Paul's already made it clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who is good. Salvation is not according to the merit system. It's according to the belief system that Jesus Christ alone can save us. Now, many of you know that I went to a private Christian college. It was very strict and it operated, the student body did, on a merit system. And really, I would call it a demerit system because they were really more interested in emphasizing what you couldn't do rather than in what you could do. And if you acquired 100 demerits in any one semester, you were automatically kicked out of school. You say, well, that would be kind of hard to do. Well, not really. Demerits were not hard to get. Each day your room was inspected. If your bed wasn't made, you got five demerits. If your sink wasn't wiped down, you got five demerits. If your floor wasn't vacuumed, you got five demerits. And you say, well, I could sort of navigate through that. But there were bigger offenses, like um, an unshaven face was 10 demerits, and they inspected your face when you stood in line for the food in the cafeteria. And if your shirt tail was untucked, another 10 minutes or 10 demerits. Um, If you went to the movies, it was 25 demerits. If you were out past curfew, it was 50 demerits. There was chapel twice a week. And if you missed one chapel, it was 25 demerits. I could go on, but here's the point. It was not hard to get demerits even daily. In fact, it was nearly impossible to avoid getting demerits. And I remember the day I graduated, I felt like I was set free from the merit system. I use that as an illustration because Paul is saying that justification by faith alone It doesn't remove the merit system, it's still in effect. Here is the difference. Jesus takes us out of that system because Jesus takes all of our demerits. When our bed wasn't made, He made it. When our floor was dirty, He vacuumed it. When our sink was messy, He wiped it down. He took the dirt of our sin upon Himself. He took all of our demerits and He set us free. And He took those demerits to the cross and He was punished for those Merit. So, therefore, there is no room for boasting. You want to follow the law or the principle or the rule of works, you will be damned in your sins. But if you want to follow the rule or the method or the principle of faith, then you have Jesus to redeem you. In fact, the Old Testament spoke about not only the love of God in the gospel, the grace of God in the gospel, but also the justice of God. Both are true. The merit system is still in place. We are just removed from it in the sense that Jesus has taken our place and taken our demerits. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9 just for a moment. Jeremiah really summarizes this for us. And I... I really love what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Notice how Jeremiah says it is... Not just the love of God, but also His justice and His righteousness. Those are things present in the good news of the gospel. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' obedience in our place. God's justice in punishing Jesus, and which is the penalty of sin in our place. And what's the response because of this good news that Jeremiah proclaimed and that Jesus proclaimed and that Paul proclaimed? It's this, let him who boasts, boast in this. Let him boast in God's righteousness alone. God's justice satisfied in Christ. God's love to send Christ to die for sinners. So it's no surprise that Paul concludes his answer to the first question, where is boasting in verse 28 of Romans 3? Notice back in Romans 3, 28, Paul says, For, that's an explanatory word, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That is why if your system, your method, your principle is works, it will not work. That's not God's method of salvation. God's method of salvation is justification by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith. And notice he uses the plural we. This isn't something that just Paul and his companions had an opinion on. The plural we indicates what all we Christians hold dear and valuable. Namely what we saw last week, which is what Paul repeats here in verse 28. That one, anyone and everyone who believes is justified by faith. Apart from works of the law. He is In other words, declared righteous, justified, it's a legal term. He is declared to be in the right with God based upon what Christ did apart from any works of the law that the sinner tried to perform. And when Martin Luther translated verse 24, he added the word alone. In his translation, he translated translated it this way. One is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. Because he wanted to give the sense of what Paul was expressing, faith alone. And when the Roman Catholic Church criticized him for this, Luther, in a way that only Luther could do, said the following. He said, and I quote, The word alone shall remain in my New Testament. And though all papal donkeys get furious, they shall not take it out. He says, in other words, the whole Roman Catholic Church, they're like a bunch of donkeys and they can make all the noise they want. But I will keep the word alone in my translation, not because it's in the original Greek, but because it gives the sense of what Paul is expressing in verse 24. You see, folks, justification by works, always looks at what man does. That's Paul's point. By nature, that is self-congratulatory. It involves boasting. On the other hand, justification by faith alone is God glorifying. It involves no boasting. And one of the great hymns that we will all sing in heaven, indeed, one of the hymns that's even being sung now is Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power in all the earth. And we sing about that now on earth, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Any boasting in heaven or on earth should be a choral boasting and the Lamb of God alone. And once again, we see that one of the cardinal marks of humanity is pride. Someone said one time that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. And I can't say this morning that a good man is never proud, but I can say that a proud man is never good. That is never a good thing. And when prideful people arise in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it mars the influence of the gospel. Paul is saying there's no room for boasting. Everything is level at the foot of the cross. We all have enough to be humbled about and to praise God for, not praise ourselves. Charles Hodge. The eminent Reformed commentator says this on this passage. He says, and I quote, a, a plan of salvation which strips every man of merit and places all sinners on the same level before God of course cuts off all assumption of superiority. The result of the gospel plan is to prevent all self-approbation, self gratulation and exaltation on the part of the sinner. He is presented as despoiled of all merit and as deserving only the displeasure of God. End quote. So Paul answers that first question: Where is boasting? And he says, "Listen, it's excluded. There is no room for boasting." But he asks a second question, which um, he also answers in verses twenty-nine and thirty, and that is, "Is God only the God of the Jews?" You see, the first result of God's saving righteousness. Was that man has no room to boast. But now the second result is the truth that God is equally the God of Gentiles as well as Jews. Notice verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? That is the question. Is God the God of Jews only? As Charles Hodge says, to quote him again, we Gentiles may now look up to heaven and confidently say, Thou art our father through Abraham Thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and though Israel acknowledge us not. Every Gentile who has believed in Christ can call God Their father. And I would just hasten to say that Abraham was somewhat aware of you. He was somewhat aware of Gentiles believing because in Genesis 12 and verse 3, God specifically told him, And you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham was aware of that, and Paul was fully aware of God's redemptive plan, fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection and glorious ascension of Christ. And so Paul the Jew asks and answers this question. If someone may wonder, is God only a God to the Jews? Paul says, or is, the God, of, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of Gentiles? Now, it is true that God began with the Jews. We all know that. God revealed himself to Abraham. He made a covenant with him. He's the father of the Jews. He entrusted to the Jewish people his revealed law. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. When we get to chapter 9, Paul is going to say to them belong the covenants and adoption. All the blessings and the privileges... And Paul will mention all of that in chapter 9. But Paul says, does this then mean that God is not also the God of the Gentiles? I mean, is that a biblically valid conclusion? Since God began with the Jews that He's therefore not the God of the Gentiles. Isn't it more true to say the exact opposite? That God's exclusion of Gentiles at the beginning actually led... To the loving purpose behind it, namely the inclusion of Gentiles as his people together with Jews united together under the same God in Jesus Christ. In other words, did not God choose the Jews to be the vehicle through which he transport Jesus who is the seed of Abraham to reach Gentiles in order that God may be a blessing to the entire world. Well, you know that the covenant God made with Abraham has been fulfilled in Christ and through whom Christ we receive the blessing of salvation that is extended to the whole world. That's what the Great Commission is about. Go and make disciples from the nations and baptize them. This gospel is a gospel that should be a light that shines bright to tell the whole world that is the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to exclude boasting, but it is not to exclude the exclude the worst kinds of sinners like Gentiles. So let me just say the gospel has no room for elitism. The gospel has no room for discrimination. And Christians still haven't learned this important point. This damages God's reputation through the church's long history of favoritism and racism and tribalism. It's interesting there. If you look at verse 29 in the original Greek and in the ESV, the way it's translated, there is no article. That is the word the is not before Jews, nor is the word the before Gentiles. That tells us something. It tells us that God isn't making superficial distinction. He doesn't see the Jews and the Gentiles. He sees Jesus' righteousness covering His people because they've been justified by faith alone, appropriated by the sinner, this salvation. That absence of the article, the Jew, the Gentile, tells us that there's no serious distinctions in the body of Christ. And Paul would put it this way in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, obviously, I need to say something about that verse because there are still men and women, boys and girls. Paul isn't saying there's no distinction there, and Paul's also not saying that independent nationhood is um, a bad thing. It's certainly better than secular globalism. There should be separate nations with borders, by the way, if you still believe in that. There is, um, there's a certain beauty to different languages, in a sense. There's a beauty to different cultures and different races. Uh, there's even differences in economic status. Some people make more than others. Some people have more pigmentation in their skin than others. But it doesn't mean anything because all are one in Christ. God is not obliterating all distinctions whatsoever, so don't give your passport up yet. And when you go to the doctor and you fill out that medical form, make sure you mark the correct gender and don't mark other for your race. Just tell them what you are. You're black, white, whatever. Be honest. But the church should celebrate these differences because they comprise humanity and God's Beautiful design of humanity. That God loves all types of people. In a true sense, all of humanity. Even Calvin would say John 3.16 applies to humanity. Because humanity is God's good creation. But God loves his people especially. And that's Paul's point. When he asks, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? The story is told that one day, Charles Spurgeon was walking through The English countryside with a friend, and as they walked along, Charles Spurgeon noticed a barn with a weather vane on its roof. And at the top of the weather vane were the words, God is love. And Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon can do, pointed out that that was a most theologically incorrect place to place the words, God is love, on a weather vane. And he said to his friend, that's rather inappropriate because weather vanes are changeable, but God's love is constant. And to his surprise, Spurgeon's friend told Charles, I disagree with you. He said, I don't agree because you misunderstand the meaning. The sign is indicating a truth. And here is the truth. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is still love. That might be the only time Spurgeon was rebuked and probably accepted the rebuke. Well, Paul is answering his own question. Understand, by arguing according to the truth that there is only one God, this God never changes He's always a God of love regardless of the winds of change and the different administrations of the covenant. There is one covenant of grace in which God is loving his chosen people, Jew or Gentile. That's the point. It matters not the changing winds of the different administrations of the covenant, the old covenant or the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant, they all fit under the same one God who has a unified plan of redemption for his one true people who are composed of Jew and Gentile. And that takes us to the answer to the question. The second half of verse 29, Paul says, Yes, of course God is God of the Gentiles also. Notice verse 30, since God is one. Paul is arguing according to monotheism. He is appealing to monotheism to prove his point. Monotheism is simply the teaching that there is but one true God. That, by the way, is affirmed throughout the Old Testament. For example, the Jews repeated daily, sometimes multiple times in one day, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the Jew telling the Jew that God is one, but in Isaiah 45, 5, God tells the Jew, I am one. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. In other words, there's only one God. So it's monotheism, this principle of oneness, the oneness of God, which was the first article of the Jewish faith. That's what they hung their hat on, and every Jew would affirm that. So Paul is trying to get this imaginary Jewish critic to think about the implications of this great doctrine of monotheism. What Paul wants them to consider is that if you believe there is only one God, then God has to be the God of the Gentiles as well as the God of the Jews, because you wouldn't say that there are two gods. There's only one true God, and if only one true God, then there's only one way of salvation because God is not theologically schizophrenic. Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners. God doesn't change regardless of the administration of the covenant. He has had one plan from the beginning, and this is clearly what Paul is getting at by pointing out that Principle of monotheism because notice what he goes on to say. He says in verse 30, he's just spoken about God who is one. Speaking about this God, Paul says who will justify, that is declare righteous, the circumcised, that is the Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is the Gentile who isn't physically circumcised, through faith. So Paul's saying it doesn't matter. Jews and Gentiles don't matter. The differences don't matter in the large scheme of things. Everyone has to be saved through faith, regardless of what sign may be applied to them. That's why you had Jews that were circumcised who were still unbelievers in the Old Testament, and that's why you have, quote-unquote, Christians part of the visible church today who have been baptized, but their hearts haven't been washed with the Holy Spirit. In order for that to happen, you have to appropriate that salvation that is offered, and the only way to do that is through faith, through the demonstration of, of faith here's Paul's point God is a single God therefore he has a single way of salvation God is one Therefore, he has one way of salvation. And I'll just quote Romans 10, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice the same oneness principle. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. And every one of those one peoples who do that will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into heaven, comes one person at a time. Now you can be part of the visible people and have the sign applied to you and be part of the visible earthly people of God and still be outside of the eternal kingdom of God. And you see, that was the whole problem with the Jewish people. And Paul is addressing that Assuming they're going to ask that question, what about Gentiles? God's way of setting all people, any people, any person right, comes through justification by faith alone. Verse 30, who will justify? The circumcised, that's the Jew by their faith. The uncircumcised, that's the Gentile through their faith. And I also should hasten to say, Paul was Jewish, so don't give some silly accusation that he was anti-Semitic. The Jews believed they alone belonged to God. And Paul's saying, you have this wrong. God is the God of humanity. proto right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Then that was f- more fully explained in Genesis twelve, two through 3 Through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And all who, like Abraham, have faith. This is Paul's point in Romans 4. Will be justified. What is all this? Well, this isn't just reaching back to Abraham. It's not just reaching back to the Garden of Eden. No, this is reaching back into eternity past when in the covenant of redemption, the three persons of our one true God agreed to send the second person of the Trinity to be the second Adam to restore fellowship with God for humanity's sake, not for a particular ethnic group of people. That's why Jesus wasn't afraid to rebuke the Jews harshly Jesus was aware of Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Don't search for another God. I am your God, but look at me for salvation. Or even Genesis 22, 18, where God told Abraham and your offspring, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? That's even more specific than families. That's every nation, every ethnic group. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. And what was uh, Abraham's obedience? Well, in the first instance, it was his trust or faith in God that he would be declared righteous. So if Abraham is the father of the Jews, he's also the father of every family of the earth, every nation of the earth who has the faith that he had. But Paul was dealing with a largely unregenerate ethnic Israel. So was Jesus. Listen to these words. Jesus said, I will tell you this. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That is a reference to Gentiles. And if you go back and read Isaiah 43, I read it earlier. It speaks about those coming from the east and the west and the north and the south. Jesus said, there are going to be Gentiles who have fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to come into the kingdom of heaven while oh, listen to this, the sons of the kingdom, that is, ethnic Jews not trusting in Jesus for salvation, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's other words for hell. What does Jesus say in John three, sixteen? For God so loved the world. All types of people. Now this really comes out, I think, in a pronounced way, in John's Gospel. You remember Jesus. He points to these three concepts of one God, one people, one way of salvation. He says, I am the good shepherd. That's one savior. I know my own and my own know me. That's speaking about the one elect people of God chosen, predestined before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, I know my own people just as the father knows me and I know the father. Or we could say when he had face to face table fellowship with The Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past when our blessed Trinity planned the covenant of redemption to secure salvation for this one chosen people. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I've known him since the beginning. I've known his plan because his plan is my plan plan together with the Holy Spirit. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Oh, wait a second. Who's that? Well, that's ethnic Jews who believe. Because Jesus goes on to say, and... I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That is elect Gentiles who are part of the chosen redeemed people who don't belong to ethnic Israel. And Jesus says, listen to this. This is compelling. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. Election. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. There is one Savior. There is one way of salvation. There is one people of God. This is the oneness of Of God's unchangeable character, the oneness and the glory of the consistency of His plan from before the foundation of the world, seen in all the covenants in the Old Testament going all the way to the New Testament, fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying God is one. He has one redemptive plan. There is one Redeemer. There is one redeemed people. The unity of this oneness Seen in the agreement among the three persons means, means the unity of this God, the unity of redemption to reach the world with salvation. Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. John Murray, the Reformed commentator, calls this oneness principle brought out, he calls it the ethnic universalism of the gospel. And I like that. Such ethnic universalism of the gospel is what Paul is speaking about in verses 29 and 30. You say, is God only the God of the Jews? And Paul says, no way. God's plan from the beginning flowed from one God who had one Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, and that means the redemption of one people through one way, that is the cross. Paul has effectively shut down any Jew who insists he can boast over a Gentile. And by application, Paul has shut down anyone who might boast because they know the one true God as if they had something to do with it. No, there's enough God to go around for everyone, to everyone who believes, who places faith in Jesus Christ. So he's appealing to the cardinal tenet of monotheism within Judaism and he's saying to them you hold there is one God there's not two one for the Jew one for the Gentile. so if God is one then he has the authority to make himself available to all types of people and that's exactly what he's done in Christ Jesus died on the cross for all types of people he was raised from the dead he ascended to the right hand of God where he is ruling and reigning and his kingdom is made up of people from every tribe tongue and and nation. All of the elect ones chosen before the foundation of, of God who were in union with Jesus Christ. I love the story of a sailor who was serving in the South Pacific during World War II. He was frightened and homesick and understandably so because his way of life, all that he had been familiar with was gone. And he found himself living a strange life among strangers and unsure of his own fate from moment to moment. He would stand on the deck of his ship And one night he stood there and he spotted the big and little dippers, Scorpio and Gemini, the same constellations he had studied in the blackened night skies back home in the States. And suddenly he felt at home, he felt at peace because he realized the same night sky as always was above him, but more importantly, the same God as always was beside him. When you think back to the Old Testament to Abraham, God said, Abraham, come out, look. Look at the sky, look at the stars. You see them? You can't count them, you can't number them. I'm the same God. I'm eternally the same. You can bank on my promise that I will create a people that number in the millions. In the millions. In an incalculable number of people. So Paul asks, in this Q&A, questions that we may ask, questions that others ask. Where is boasting? Paul says there's no room for it. It's excluded. You're not allowed to do it. It's unacceptable. Well, second question, is God only the God of the Jews? Paul says, no, are, are you kidding me? You believe in monotheism. There can only be one God, one real true God, who is the same. He doesn't change. That leads to the third question. Verse 31, does faith make void God's law? That's an important question, folks. Because if it's true that we are saved by justification, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, the question inevitably comes up, then what's the point of God's law? What's the point? If we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, what's the point? We can't keep the law, why try to? Look to Christ for salvation. We can't keep the law, why try to? And we've already been saved, so who cares? Notice verse 31. The question since, or excuse me, verse 31, the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He's asking this faith that I've been teaching. Justification by faith. That's the question. And he answers, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, let me just say there is considerable difference of interpretation of verse 31. I mean, considerable difference. I I really believe that these differences are overplayed. I think they're unwarranted because there's greater agreement among interpreters than one might think. And I want to try to show that to you. But let me start by saying this. Some people insist that the word law, notice your Bible's in verse 31, it's used there two times in verse 31, that that word law refers to the entirety of the Old Testament scripture. So you could think of it this way, the Torah, which was another name for God's law, simply meant, the verb meant to instruct. So Jews often viewed the entirety of the collection of Old Testament books as divine instruction, the divine instruction of God the Torah, the divine law. And if that's true, Paul could be answering a fictitious critic who wonders if the gospel of justification by faith alone upholds or undermines the Old Testament. And you have different views of that. There are even Christians today who believe that Jews were saved a different way in the Old Testament than people today. So that question is raised. Radical dispensationalists usually hold to that. So some think that Paul is saying the gospel as it's presented in the New Testament does not overthrow the law. Notice again verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law of God. In other words, they say that what Paul is arguing In verse 31 is sort of a transitional verse leading to chapter 4. And what is in chapter 4? Well, Paul takes two examples from the Old Testament, right? Abraham and David. He shows from the law of the Old Testament that both David and Abraham were justified by faith. And so Paul says, we don't overthrow the law. We don't overthrow the Old Testament by teaching this faith by no no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the Old Testament, i.e. Old Testament, because Abraham and David proved that they were justified by faith alone. They were saved the same way every other saint was saved throughout the history of redemption. I think there's weight to this argument, that that's what Paul is referring to. But I don't think it's all Paul is referring to He's not just defending the consistency of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, after all, if you believe in one God, you've got to affirm that he's competent to reveal himself the same way. And that is why others, particularly Reformed commentators, view that word law in verse 31 to be speaking specifically about the law of commandment. So think back to the beginning when we looked at verse 27. We talked about a principle of law, a method of law, something like that. This is the the law of commandment. So Paul isn't really specifically speaking about the Old Testament or even really Mosaic law, although that applies. He's really speaking more generally about this law of commandment. Any law of commandment, any law and any religion, any cult, any church, doesn't matter. So John Murray explains this way. What is in view is law as commanding to compliance and performance. And the insistence of the apostles that any works in performance of any such commandment are of no avail in justification. The question is then, does this abrogate or do away with the law of commandment and make it irrelevant and inoperative in any and every respect? Paul's answer in terms of his most emphatic formula of denial is no. He recoils with abhorrence from the suggestion that says, God forbid, or by no means. Having thus rejected the supposition, he says the opposite. Yea, we establish the law, or on the contrary, we uphold the law. So in other words, God's law, whether in written revelation or in the heart of man, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, or in the conscience, uh, Psalm chapter 19, even in written revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. Every man knows it in his heart. He sees it in creation. Any form of natural law, that is a good thing. Natural law is a good thing. The Mosaic law is a good thing. Any commandment that God gives is a good thing. How could it not be? Because faith in Christ, resulting in justification, upholds the law. Why? Because it gives the law its proper place. And what is that? Well, God's purpose of the law is to provide to the sinner a knowledge of what? Sin. Notice verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So understand this, in God's scheme, the law of God is good. We uphold the law because it exposes and condemns sin. The law keeps people bound in the prison of their guilt so they can see that they are bound, so they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to free them from their guilt. Therefore, the law is good. Paul says this in another place, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God forbids, certainly not, Paul says in Galatians, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin. So the scripture, the Old Testament, the law of God, whatever you want to say, the commandments of God has imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law of God imprisons you, condemns you, exposes your sin. That's a gracious thing. Therefore, Christians uphold the law of God. It's part of our gospel presentation because you have to get them lost before they can see their need to be found by the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott says the gospel and the law dovetail with each other since the gospel justifies those whom the law condemns. Amen and amen. And because justification by faith alone is not according to law, obedience or works, it upholds God's standard of the law, but it at the same time upholds God's justice because in Christ and his obedience, the demands of the law were satisfied. God did not wink at sin. He punished the sins of all of his elect people in Jesus Christ. That is the justice of God. That is God upholding the law. It's not God breaking the law, throwing it away, and saying, I don't care. It's God saying, I am so holy in my character, I must uphold my law. And the only way to do that and to show that is by punishing an innocent man in the place of sinners. So Paul says, by no means do we overthrow the law by this faith. On the contrary, we uphold the law of God. True Christians won't live contrary to the law, they'll delight in obeying the law. Because their nature has been changed, they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who teaches them not to have fellowship with works of darkness that are lawless. And Paul has to say this in verse 31 because there were people in his own day and there are people today who are antinomian. They are anti-law. And they say that because they've been set free from their sin, they've been set free even from the justice of the law because justice was meted out on Christ, that they can live any way they want. They don't have to obey the law. I'm under grace, not the law. You hear people say that all the time. No, you're still under law. You're not under the condemnation of law if you're a Christian, but you're still under the law of God. And so Paul says, by no means can this happen. By no means does the gospel of justification by faith teach you can live any way you want. On the contrary, it actually reinforces the law of God. Because the law reveals the knowledge of sin and because the Holy Spirit that has been poured out in our hearts, Romans 5.5, 5, gives us a power to obey that law in a way we never could, apart from Christ. In fact, if you just skip quickly with me to Romans chapter 8, I can't help, I can't resist to show it to you. In verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the law doesn't condemn us, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah! For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, you can't obey the law to earn salvation. The law is impotent to provide that. And God, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. That's upholding God's law, God's justice. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The flesh of Jesus took the justice of God so the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's simply 2 Corinthians 5.21. He gave us his righteousness and he took our sin. Jesus did. And then he says this, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And to not walk according to the flesh means to walk in a way that honors the spirit, that honors this unified triune God, Who upholds his law. He cherishes the law of God. He doesn't set his mind on the flesh. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to what? God's law. Because it cannot. But we are not of the flesh. We are of the spirit. Therefore we can obey the law of God. Not perfectly. But we can obey the law of God. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of death for all who believe. The cross itself establishes or upholds God's law through payment, the payment of our sin through Christ. And by pointing, because by Jesus hanging on that cross, it is driving sinners to look to Jesus alone. He obeyed the law in our place, a law we couldn't obey. The law of God is our tutor that leads us to Christ. And in the gospel, in the cross, the provision of the Holy Spirit, which we do not have apart from regeneration, the same Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts enables us to love God, love others, show gratitude, and obey out of gratitude for the gospel that saved us. So, so any notion that law isn't important undermines the value of the gospel itself. We don't want to be legalistic. I told our new members this morning in our new membership class, I have no desire to police your life. I'm not going to follow you after church and see where you go. I trust that if you're a true Christian, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have taken prayerfully what has been taught to you, and then you live that out throughout the week. You come back the next week, you sit under the instruction of God's word, and you go at it again. We don't work in the flesh, but we do work in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is it is God's will that we work at to fulfill because it is God's spirit that is at work within us. To quote loosely Philippians chapter 2. We've been saved by grace. It's not of ourselves, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. But Ephesians 2.9 says that we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So Paul, here in Romans 3, what a master. Of course, he had the advantage of writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I understand that. But God used his mind. This Q&A. Paul, am I allowed to boast? No. Well, is God just God of the Jews and not the Gentiles? No, are you crazy? God created everyone. And the same gospel is provided and offered to all. Well, if it's all of grace and Jesus paid it all... Can I live any way I want? Does this void out God's law? By no means. On the contrary. Just the opposite. You want to honor the law of God. You want to obey the law of God. That's your heart's desire. This is an amazing text. And it reminds me of a story I read. of A young soldier in Italy. He was scared and jumped into a foxhole. Barely in enough time to save his life because a shell landed on the other side. and As he's digging around in the dirt to dig it deeper, his fingers hit some metal and he pulls up from the ground a crucifix that a former occupant had obviously accidentally left. And he's sitting there looking at this thing and he's not a religious man. About that time another shell comes, he ducks his head and when he, when he looks up, someone else had jumped in and it was an army chaplain. And he said, boy, am I glad to see you. I found this, and I want you to tell me how it works. He held the crucifix up. The chaplain said, you don't need to know how that works because it doesn't work. What you need to do is look by faith alone in Christ alone. Trust in him as the one that can rescue not only from earthly fears, not only from earthly disaster, but from hell itself throw the crucifix away. Jesus has ascended. He is reigning. And he will powerfully call all of his elect to himself when we faithfully proclaim the gospel, which includes declaring the law of God. Because as Christians, we want God to be honored. We want him exalted out of a heart of gratitude. And what is the best way to do that? You could say by coming to church and worshiping, that's only one small part. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to be living sacrifices to God. We are to honor him in everything we, we do, not just the so-called spiritual elements of this ministry or that ministry or This church event or that church event. No, the proof is in the pudding of your marriage. The proof is in the pudding of the way you raise your children. The proof is in the pudding of of what people think about you in the workplace and in the community. That is enough to handle on its own. And we live in a society that is overburdened. Suicide rates are up. Mental health is at an all-time high. Drugs are coming in across our border. The last thing we want to do as shepherds of this church is overburden you with a bunch of spiritual activities. That all they do is feed pride. What we want is for you to come faithfully each week, sit under the instruction of the Word of God, prayerfully ask the Lord of God to forgive you of your sin, to sanctify you, to stay in touch with other brothers and sisters, to hold you accountable, to love them and to serve them when things come up, to pray for one another, and then guess what? Come back the next week and do the same thing and do it for the next 50 years. That's true Christianity. But people want a platform, don't they? People want a voice. People want to be heard. People want to be seen. Paul's simple gospel says just be faithful. Honor the Lord. There's no room for boasting. Honor the Lord. Obey the Lord. The proof is in the pudding of your life. Evidence that the Holy Spirit has indeed indwelt you. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will work on our hearts. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.